Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I am our lead pastor here at Asbury, and I, uh, I hope that this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, will increase, well, I would say your knowledge of the Bible, but we're doing something a bit different today, uh, and that it'll be a little bit entertaining for you as we go along. Now, I, this this spring, I did a, a series of three short, three-week-long classes. Um, the first one was over human sexuality, which, which really was a, a longer talk about what it means that we're made in the image of God, because that's where we derive our uh, theology of sexuality from. And then I did one over, over uh, Methodism in general and, and sort of the history behind it and the things that make Methodism distinctive. And then I did one on the Nicene Creed. Um, now, you can guess which one of those classes was the most popular and maybe which one was the least popular, but uh, and the Nicene Creed one got interrupted midway through by a storm that knocked out church power, so it ended up being a two-week class, not a three-week class. But nonetheless, uh, what I did with the first two is I turned those into podcasts, and now I'm going to do the same thing with the Nicene Creed. Um, now, you are probably familiar with the Apostles' Creed, um, that's, of course, that's the one we recite in worship every Sunday. The Apostles' Creed is shorter and more easily memorized. It's more rhythmic, which is part of why it's more easily re- memorized. And it's older than the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is longer, it's more detailed. Um, but the reason why it's important, as we'll get into in a minute, is that it's generally universally accepted that the Nicene Creed constitutes the bare minimum of Christian belief. So let's 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 dive right in here and begin talking about the Nicene Creed. So, what we call the Nicene Creed is actually it's the product of two ecumenical councils. One in the city of Nicaea, which uh, is the present-day city of Iznik in Turkey. Fun little fact for you. Um, and that was in the year AD 325. And then uh, a follow-up conference in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, in AD 381. And preceding the, the finalization of this creed, there was this full century or so of debate over the nature of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this whole creed is really meant to describe and define who God is, which means describing the Trinity. So let me just read to you the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. 
He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That is the Nicene Creed. With with the exception of the uh, Eastern Orthodox churches, all Christians in the world believe this. The Eastern Orthodox churches, excuse me, the Eastern Orthodox churches change one little bit. And this, by the way, is the reason why there was a split between the Eastern and Western churches, and it's the line about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have in our creed uh, the, Holy, the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, if I'm remembering this correctly, in the Orthodox Church, they remove the bit about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, and he just proceeds from the Father. Um, and, and that little difference is why we have an Eastern and Western churches. So, let's dive into some of the history and background here. In AD 324, Constantine reunited the Roman Empire under a single throne. As was very common, uh, when the previous emperor had died, multiple people came forward to claim the throne. The Roman Empire um, did not have this... See, we're used to monarchies like the British monarchy, where one monarch dies and their oldest son, or in some cases just oldest child is automatically assumed to be inheriting the throne. And so you have this very stable transition of power. Um, that's actually a, a, a really a fairly recent development in, in human history. Um, for most of human history, um, even if the king on his deathbed said he, said he proclaimed his eldest son to be the heir... Um, that didn't guarantee him the job. He, he had to actually prove that he was strong enough to lead. And, and so there are, uh, a hand, there are a handful of, ex of examples of peaceful transitions of power in the ancient world. But more often than not, when an emperor or a king dies, there are multiple claimants to the throne. Um, and, and to claim the throne, they didn't just necessarily... Sometimes they had a royal bloodline. Sometimes they just had a, a lot of power <laughs> and the loyalty of... Of, a, of the military and the loyalty of the people. Um, and so you see very commonly in the Roman Empire that when an emperor dies, there's very often civil war. Um, it doesn't happen every single time, but it happens often enough that uh, it, it's sort of something that, you know, as an emperor nears his death, people get nervous. Um, so the previous emperor dies, there's, there's civil war within the empire, Constantine claims the throne, there's other claimants whose names I cannot remember right now. Um, Constantine wins his civil war and in 324 reunites the Roman Empire under a single throne, brings peace. And, and the, the final battle in, in which he defeats his opponent and claims the throne, this is the, the famous battle in which he sees a vision of, of the cross and, and 
uh, converts to Christianity uh, because he claims the Christian God promised him victory if he uh, converted. Now, we have lots of reason to question the validity of that story, I think, and lots of reason to question the sincerity of Constantine's faith. But there's, it's pretty clear that something happened that convinced him to publicly claim to be a Christian, which is significant. And so I, I'm inclined to say, you know, he probably, maybe he did see some sort of vision. Maybe God did promise him victory in that battle, or at least that's what he thought he saw. Um, something significant happened to convince him that, th that he needed to adopt this faith. Now, again, we can question the sincerity of his conversion later on. Um, there's some evidence he never quite stopped worshiping some of the Roman gods. Um, but either way, Constantine converts to Christianity, um, puts an end to the, issues a, an imperial decree which ends the persecution of Christians um, several years after, in, in, in well, I think, AD 23, somewhere around there. Um, so he, he ends the persecution of Christians. And he will then move the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople, uh, which is why it's called Constantinople after Constantine. And he convenes the first ecumenical, fully representative, and universally recognized council of the Christian church. This is a big deal, because up to this point, when Christians have been sort of not just social outcasts, but often persecuted, they've not had the ability, really, to gather all their leadership together in one place. And so it's been, Christianity has been operating almost like an organization of, of these scattered cells throughout the empire with a, a kind of, to us at least, a shocking degree of independence with each one. And um, so this is the first time that, that they are able to gather together all in one place and talk about it. And there's a specific issue that they need to resolve. They have been summoned to resolve a problem that springs up uh, seven years earlier and has divided the Christian church in a way that nothing else really has before. Uh, so in the year 318 in Alexandria in Egypt, a, a church leader named Arius began publicly proclaiming his theory that Jesus was not God at all. He was only a, um, a celestial servant of the true God who alone was almighty and transcendent and the creator and the first cause of all things. And he, as, as proof of this, he cites uh, stories in the gospel where Jesus is prone to emotion as opposed to the father who was always in control of his emotions, where Jesus grows and learns as opposed to the father who never changes. And of course, where Jesus dies, which, you know, God is supposed to be immortal. How can God die? So, Arius is tampering with some of the crucial distinctions that separate God from humanity, but um, what he's, and, and there's some debate here as well about Scripture, but we'll get into that later. Um, basically, there are places where Jesus seems to suggest that he is subordinate to God the Father. Uh, I should have had my Bible open to that place already. Oops. 
So you have, for instance, uh, John 14:28, where Jesus says, You have heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, the problem with saying that this means that Jesus is subordinate to the Father is that Scripture is actually really clear that Jesus is equal with the Father. And um, Even in that same chapter of John, in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So all this language that Jesus is using heavily implies that he and the Father are one. You also have um, passages like John 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Right out of Jesus' mouth, I and the Father are one. And of course, the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Arius' claim is, is really actually quite easily refuted by Scripture. Um, but the question we have now is, how can we worship Jesus and worship the Father, who we know is different from Jesus, and still claim to be monotheists who worship the one true God. Now, many people today, Muslims, for instance, have a lot of trouble with this idea. They'll accuse us of being polytheistic. So this is actually an important thing to get right. And the, the monotheism part, the belief that there is only one God, is, is a central claim not just to, to Christian theology, but to our worldview as Christians and prior to us as Jews. It, it's the central part of the belief that, that there is one God who created everything. We don't have time here to actually go into why. <laughs> it, it affects every aspect of our belief, every aspect of the way we look at the world. The one God, the one and only God who exists is the creator of all things. This is important. This matters. 
So, after years of fierce division that stretched from the clergy to the common people, this ecumenical council was summoned to resolve the issue once and for all. Now, the Nicene Creed, like the Apostles' Creed, encapsulates the entire good news of the gospel into a short and rich summary. It, it describes the triune God who turns toward humanity in the person of Jesus, the God-man, who suffered, died, rose again, and ascended. And the creed goes on to express our future hope, the purpose of living the Christian life. But it's the Nicene Creed and not the Apostles' Creed that describes the minimum of Christian belief. Now, the leaders of the church, as they were putting together the creed, found that there were areas in the rule of faith that left too much open to personal interpretation. Uh, the fact that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just as much God as the Father is a non-negotiable part of Christianity. It's not that Christians are expected to have a perfectly precise Trinitarian theology just to be considered orthodox, but since questions about the relationship between Jesus and God the Father are inevitable, they need to be answered well. And so the Nicene Creed encapsulates what Scripture says about that relationship, and it acknowledges the mystery of it. Now let's stop here for a minute and point something out. The Nicene Creed predates the Bible. When the Creed is formulated, the New Testament has not been put together. They've got the Old Testament, they've got the prophets and the law but they have not yet come together to agree on which texts belong in the New Testament. And, and again, part of that is that they just haven't had the opportunity, but it will take them another couple of hundred years after the Nicene Creed is put together before they agree on which books go in the New Testament and which books aren't. And that means, by the way, that the Nicene Creed is actually part of the measuring rod of which books actually belong in the Bible versus which books don't. Um, books that contradict the Nicene Creed wouldn't, wouldn't be included. Now, it's not the only measuring stick. Um, and to be clear, we can have faith that the Bible is the book we're supposed to have because the same Holy Spirit who was present and active in the writing of those books and in the translating of those books was present and active in the selection of those books. But the creeds predate the Bible that we have. Which means, in all honesty, in, in modern Protestant churches, we have downplayed the importance of the creeds to a shocking degree. These predate the Bible. These are, these are the documents that formed and shaped Christian belief when there was no one agreed-upon canon of Christian scripture. Which means they are every bit as important for the formation of our faith and for our discipleship as the Bible itself. They are not the Word of God, I'm not saying that, but they are inspired, they are vital. If Christianity had agreed with Arius that Jesus could be a lesser God, if it had failed to defend monotheism, if it had fallen into the trench of professing three unrelated deities, it would have just dissolved into the religion of Rome and its pantheons of other false gods. There would have been nothing distinctive about it anymore. It would have just become one of the many religions of Rome. You could worship 
the Holy Spirit, and Jupiter. You could worship the Sun and Triton. Maintaining that, that boundary of monotheism was vital because it, it claims that, look, these gods you worship are not real. This is the only real God. That is a core claim of Christianity. That's why monotheism matters. If the early Christians had lost their nerve and conceded the, the so-called lesser divinity of Jesus, whatever that might mean, then the work of God in Christ for our salvation would have been rendered meaningless. No mere man and, and no half-god could possibly intervene to save a fallen and sinful humanity, let alone restore all of creation. Only the Creator can enter creation to fix its brokenness and redeem its original purpose. The early church father Athanasius explored that idea in his uh, work on the Incarnation, defending the claim that the Father and the Son share one common substance. Right? That's a line from the Creed, right? Of one substance with the Father. Because only the Creator can recreate. Only the Maker can remake. Only God can save us from our sins. And because the Father and the Son are one substance with each other, we can also be assured that we actually know God in Jesus Christ. After all, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's Hebrews 1 verse 3. So when we look on Jesus, we look on God. Without confidence that Jesus is God, united in substance with the Father, we could not be sure that Jesus can speak for God, forgive sins for God, declare righteousness for God, or do anything to make us children of the Father. That's why the creed matters. That's why this council matters. That's why it matters that we understand this belief and defend this belief. This is, that's why this is the bare minimum of Christian belief. When you depart from the, the sure and certain knowledge that Jesus is God, that he is one substance with the Father, you are by definition no longer Christian. We can disagree on a wide range of things and still call each other brother and sister in Christ. But to reject the idea that Jesus is one with the Father, it's not just that you are no longer Christian at that point, it's that you are denying the work of Christ on the cross. It's a slap in the face to God. It's denying that he died for our sins. It's denying that he has defeated sin and death. It's denying... It's rejecting the free gift of grace that God gives us. So this matters. And, and the, the creed focuses more on the person of and work of Jesus than on the Father or on the Spirit. Because this matters. This is what makes Christianity distinct. Jesus is the central figure in the Christian faith. You can't be a proper Christian without a clear understanding of who Jesus is. Before we even get into a discussion about what Jesus has done for us, we have to first understand who he is. The identity of Jesus is the core of the revelation of the New Testament and 
all of the major heresies in church history have been destructive precisely because they set themselves against the unique supremacy of Jesus Christ. So look at, uh, you have the Gnostics in the ancient world who, um, who denied that Jesus was fully human, who denied that he really died on the cross, and their whole belief system uh, rested on this dichotomy between body and spirit, that the body is bad, the spirit is good, the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good, and, and focus only on the spiritual and neglect the physical. And you can see, by the way, that that belief, that heresy has popped back up in modern times. You see it uh, on both the right and the left in the modern church, and we've got to push back against that. Because the Bible never says the body is bad. Remember, when Paul compares the flesh and the spirit, he's not comparing our spirit versus our flesh. He's comparing us and the Holy Spirit. Our hope is not in a disembodied future. Our hope is in the resurrection. So the Gnostics deny the supremacy of Jesus Christ because they deny his humanity. The Arians deny his divinity. Um, you even today have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Right? Jehovah's Witness, like the Arians, teach that Jesus is a created being who doesn't share God's eternal nature and therefore is not fully divine. Mormons deny the uniqueness of God altogether, teaching that all of us can become gods. You, you still have today um, a lot of modern Protestant liberals who, who will portray Jesus as nothing more than a great moral example or, or someone on par with other great religious leaders like, like Gandhi and, and, and Buddha. And, um, and to be clear, that doesn't mean every Christian who leans towards the liberal side of things thinks those things. Um, there, is a, there, there are, though, Protestant liberal teachers who will do that. And, and, and there's been a tradition of that dating back into um, the, the 20th century. This is an idea that sort of sprung out of um, German theological schools and has made its way across the Atlantic. Um, but scripture is clear. Look in Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That word Lord in Greek is kurios, and it's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for Yahweh, the name of God. He's right off the bat identifying Jesus with God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Son of God. John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, when he saw Jesus' wounds in his resurrected body. My Lord and my God. Turning to other questions. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus and God are one. Jesus is God. According to the scriptures, the entire Old Testament was pointing to and preparing for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the past, there were many prophets and priests and means through which God the Father revealed himself, but now it's all culminated in the revelation of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. He fulfills the Jewish priesthood. He fulfills the sacrificial system. He embodies God's righteousness. He is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there has been a push in recent years to abandon the traditional language of the Trinity and embrace a gender-neutral language for it, such as uh, Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. There are two reasons why we reject this idea. Uh, first, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the language given to us in Scripture, and we are talking about a being who is beyond our ability to comprehend. So it makes sense that we would want to use the language to describe him that he himself has given us. Um, and that language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveals the relational nature of God. If we lose the relational language that lies at the heart of God's of, of the church's language about the triune God, all we've got left is the abstract concept of God. We'd just be a bunch of philosophers talking about God in theory. The second reason is that while the words creator, redeemer, and sanctifier are all wonderful and accurate descriptions of the Trinity, they only describe what God has done, not who God is. The phrases God the Father and Jesus Christ his only Son confess who God is. So both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed begin by confessing who God is before they ever talk about what God has done. God is relational. These words give us a way to understand who God is. So now we'll get into... Um, just a real quick note here. Uh, the Creed also talks about Jesus saying he's begotten of the Father before all worlds. Now, something which is begotten has been fathered. That's what that word means. It means something which has been fathered. We use this language in the Creed uh, partly because Jesus himself uses it in John 3.16. Now, the translation I read from didn't render it that way, but it is rendered that way, uh, especially in older translations, right? Who, that God is in his only begotten Son. Um it's also a way to express the connection between the Father and the Son without saying that Jesus was created. Uh, it's a linguistic sidestep for something that we don't really have language for. The Son is begotten of the Father, but he's not created. He is of one substance with the Father. We don't fully understand, and we cannot fully understand how that works. It's, it's beyond human experience. It's beyond human knowledge. 
So we're going to move on now to what Jesus did. And the question specifically of why did Jesus die? Because it's pretty clear. He died. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. And there are a couple of, well, I've got three reasons here for why Jesus died. Another way of talking about this by is, is, is what the atonement is. How did he atone for our sins? So first, Jesus died, to quote Hebrews 2.9, that he might taste death for everyone. And this is substitutionary atonement. Jesus dies as a substitute for us. The punishment for our rebellion against God is death, and Jesus takes that punishment in our place. He also lives that out in his life. And I, I, when I was preaching through the Gospels earlier this year, I drew your attention to that. And some of the, in many of the stories of Jesus, his interactions with people, he, he, the way he deals with people who are asking for forgiveness of sin or healing is he takes sort of the wrath that's being directed at those people and draws it onto himself in a foretaste of what he's going to do on the cross. So that's one. He, he dies as a substitute for us. He also dies to express solidarity with us. In fact, his whole incarnation from birth, life, and death, this reflects his solidarity with the human race. He lived a fully human life, and he showed us how to live in righteousness. And this is made most clear in his death. Throughout his life, Jesus faced temptation, suffering, and pain in ways which he had never known before the incarnation. In the ancient world, uh, it didn't matter how strong and intimidating someone looked. You didn't assume that they were a fearsome warrior until they had actually seen battle. The proof was in the fighting. In this case, God proved his love for us by living and dying as one of us. He proved his righteousness by resisting every temptation flung at him, even in the midst of his suffering and death. And he proved his commitment to us by not flinching in the face of death. Only one who has resisted temptation successfully knows the full power of temptation. If you regularly give in to temptation, you don't know its full power. Only someone who has resisted to the very end and never given in truly understands the power of temptation. And that means only Jesus knows the true power of temptation. This means he can empathize with us and sympathize with us on a level no one else really can. He knows human weakness because he lived as one of us, and he knows the incredible power of the temptations we face every day because he successfully resisted them. This is part of the mercy that God has for us. God knows exactly what we're going through. He knows exactly what we are experiencing. He knows exactly how difficult it is for us to resist the temptations that come our way every day. The third reason he died was to destroy the devil who held the power of death. Scripture insists all throughout that there is a personality behind the rebellion against God. Evil is embodied, and the rule of evil is extended and advanced through real personalities. 
we don't talk about this much because actually the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about it a whole lot. It hints at it. It drops hints here and there, but it never goes into detail. Um, but but there's still this clear sense that, that Satan oversees a network of demonic powers, and he is the head of this diabolical kingdom. The New Testament, by the way, never treats the false gods being worshipped in other religions as um, not real. It treats them as demons. Paul, in particular, is convinced that behind every idol being worshipped is a demon who has lured people into worshipping him. Jesus personally confronted the powers of this dark world. He suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who, in allowing the crucifixion, unwittingly allied himself with Satan by his choices, which is a warning for us all. And Jesus defeats them in the cross and in the resurrection. Evil does its worst and fails. That's the third reason Jesus dies, to break the power of evil, to draw the full force of evil onto himself and defeat it. Now the creed deals briefly with the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, the person of God who dwells in us, who guides us, who leads us. The language that Paul uses for the resurrection implies that Paul believed that in the resurrection it would be the Holy Spirit, not just who dwells within us, but who animates us. Because the Holy Spirit brings us to life. We have this bit about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This is important. Church unity is important. When we uphold the Nicene Creed, we stand in unity with the body of Christ all across the world. Catholics, Protestants, Americans, Africans, South Americans, men, women, rich and poor, we are united in Christ. There is a lot about that, that that really matters. A big part of why this matters is our ability to interpret Scripture and the will of God. Billions of Christians from all kinds of different cultural backgrounds, from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, speaking all kinds of different languages, have read the same book and drawn the same conclusions. People will often... Uh, accuse Orthodox Christian beliefs of being westernized or something like that, and maybe a little bit, but the reality is that the Bible transcends cultural barriers in a way that nothing else does. Because again, people from all different kinds of backgrounds read it and come to the same conclusions, and that has been true for 2,000 years, which tells us that this book is trustworthy, and it also gives us a guide for interpreting it. If we're reading it and we're thinking something that no one else has ever thought, that no one else seems to believe about it, we've got a problem because there are billions of other people reading the same book, empowered by the same Holy Spirit to understand the Word. It 
This helps us know we're on the right ground. It helps us to see that, uh, that I'm not just interpreting it this way because I'm an American or because I'm a man or because I grew up in a conservative household or because I grew up in a liberal household. This is why it's important, by the way, to, to build connections with Christians across the globe, to read books written by pastors and theologians from other cultures so that, so that you can actually be immersed in the worldwide Christian thought, the worldwide Christian exploration of Scripture. And finally, this last little bit, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This little sentence at the end is huge because we still in the Western world have, have been falling into this Gnostic idea, this heretical idea that, that, all, that this world is not our home, that God's going to snatch our souls away and we'll enjoy a disembodied existence off in the heavens. And that, my friends, is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. You will not find it. Look all you want. It is not there. What is there is the promise of resurrection. What is there is the promise that those who die before the resurrection wait with Jesus in heaven. It's not that when... So hear me. It's not that we don't go to heaven when we die. It's that heaven is a waiting place where we await the resurrection and the life of the world to come. That's why the Bible ends with this scene in Revelation of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth where God will dwell with his people forever. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is a life, an eternal life, in a resurrection body, in God's new creation. And that's the Nicene Creed. Read it. Study it. Maybe try to memorize it. This is the bare minimum of Christian belief. This is our standard of what makes us Christian. And I hope I've been able to explain why that matters. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Until then, God bless.